John 4, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He has told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. It only takes a small shift in perspective for understanding to become confusion or confusion to become understanding. Our assumptions and priorities impact how we hear. If they match the speaker's, We get what they're saying. We can learn more than we knew before. But when our assumptions and priorities are different, well, that's a recipe for confusion. Abbott and Costello capitalized on this to create one of the most memorable comedy sketches of all time. This is the whole point of who's on first. The confusion and the comedy arises from Costello's simple assumption that Abbott's sentences end with question marks rather than periods. When he says, who's on first, he's trying to make a statement. Mr. Who is playing first base. But Costello, assuming there are question marks, here's the interrogative. Who is on first? And so time after time, he replies, exactly. That's what I'm asking you. Who is on first? Jesus' whole ministry is counterpredictable. And especially in the Gospel of John, many important conversations turn on this kind of misunderstanding. Nicodemus, taking Jesus literally, was confused about how someone could be born again. The Samaritan woman, taking Jesus literally, didn't understand this living water. And here, the disciples make the same mistake with verse 32's, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And in each case, Jesus invites this confusion in order to highlight something he wants to teach. When the disciples came back from the village, they saw Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, and they were flabbergasted. That he would have such a personal, intimate exchange with a woman, a Samaritan, no less, was as shocking to them as it was initially to her. But out of deference to their teacher, they bite their tongues. Or at least 
They wait long enough for the conversation to end and for her to depart before trying to turn Jesus' attention back to their task, the food they brought back from the village. That their response to the Samaritan woman's conversion is to change the subject to Jesus' appetite shows the Lord that their priorities are not the same as his. So he does what he's done before. He creates confusion to call attention to those different priorities so that he can highlight his own priorities and teach his disciples to follow his lead. Their concern is food. I'm sympathetic. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity for an analogy because food does two things for us. It sustains And it delights. Now, not all food does this equally, of course. Sometimes we're in a hurry and we simply need the sustenance. Nothing wrong with that. But we should not treat all our meals this way. Because God did not give food merely to sustain. I know that some of you recently read Andy Weir's new book. The guy who wrote The Martian wrote a new book. It's called Project Hail Mary. It's about a team of scientists who have to travel 13 years away from the earth in a spaceship to find the answer to a sun-destroying plague. And because of the distance, the scientists, the astronauts, are induced into comas, and they're fed this coma slurry by medical robots, and it is as disgusting as it sounds. It has all the nutrients, the vitamins, and the minerals that humans need to survive, but the taste and the texture are horrible because they're in a coma. Why does it matter? Had God so desired... All food would be coma slurry. He could have made human nutrition available through slurries or through licking rocks or even a lifetime of manna from heaven, eating the same food day after day. But that's not what he did, is it? Pick a food group, proteins, fruits, vegetables, or my favorite, ice cream. And within each of those group is tremendous variety and potential to delight. Carrots, carrots that come out of the dirt yet become sweet when you roast them. Tender cuts of beef bursting with flavor, eggs, herbs, seafood, all manner of grains and rice. Yes, occasionally we must simply eat to live. But by and large, Christians get to live to eat with gratefulness in our hearts toward God because we are aware that it didn't have to be this way, that he provided these delights because he could and because he wanted us to have them. The disciples, having good reason to believe that Jesus is hungry, press upon him to eat. But Jesus, at this moment, is being sustained and delighted by what just happened in the spiritual realm. He has food they don't know about. And in answer to their confusion about where it came from, he says plainly, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. One writer says, if in his dealings with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his father's will, there was greater sustenance and satisfaction in that than in any food the disciples could bring. They want to know where his sustenance and delight came from, and Jesus points heavenward. Now remember, 
Jesus is using this method of confusion and clarification to teach. He's not saying that people who love to do God's will don't need earthly food. He will go on to eat just as the Samaritan woman will eventually return to her jar of water and drink again. But he finds the analogy useful because of its focus on priorities, which are essential. Food sustains and delights your physical being. And the question Jesus asks is, what does that for your spirit? What sustains and delights your soul? For Jesus, and therefore for all who walk with Jesus, it's obedience to the Father's will. It is as essential as the food and drink we put into our bodies. We are physical and spiritual persons, and so we can't survive long without either. We need food and drink, and also, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The disciples' priorities are more situational. So in this moment, physical hunger wins out. you got to eat something. But was that their most important need in the moment? Jesus doesn't think so. Or what about the Samaritan woman? Obtaining water was the story and the rhythm of her life. But Jesus saw she needed something more. Nicodemus thought some sort of political alliance with Jesus was essential. But Jesus offered him the new birth instead. Even, go back a few stories, his own mother, Mary, she makes her request to Jesus out of a concern of public embarrassment. We just got to help these people get by in a pinch. And he redirects her priorities. It's not that these things don't matter. They all matter. The question is what comes first? And so in all of these circumstances, Jesus creates a bit of confusion so that he can draw attention to the priority. He is most concerned with doing his father's will. That's where his analysis begins of every single situation and moment in life. What is my father's will? He will be physically hungry again, sure, But more importantly, he seeks satisfaction and delight in his father's will. And so he asked the disciples, and by extension us, which do you think matters more? Which do you live like matters more? One of the reformers wrote, Jesus only points out what he must do first, and then what must be done afterwards. The kingdom of God ought to be preferred to all the comforts of the body. God allows us to eat and drink, provided we are not withdrawn from that which is most important. Jesus' spiritual food, the source of his ultimate nourishment and satisfaction, is to do the will of the one who sent him. And it's not just that he does it, it's that he delights in it. The work that was done in the Samaritan woman's heart was delicious food for his soul. It's what God called him to do. Think about how David describes God's word in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving 
the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlivening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That sounds like somebody who really understands the spiritual food that sustains and delights. Now, in what comes next, verses 35 to 38, Jesus explains why his fathers need spiritual food. As he does this, they also have work to do according to the father's will. He says there to be sowers and reapers in the kingdom. And if you're going to do a lifetime of kingdom work, food and drink won't be enough to sustain you. You need spiritual food. It's neat what happens in this text, but you've really got to pay attention to notice it. When Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, he is seeing the Samaritans approaching off in the distance. And so he's calling the disciples to look up at them as he teaches them about the spiritual harvest. The timing is an amazing statement of his providential control. They appear just at the moment they're useful to what Jesus is teaching. And since food is on the disciples' mind, Jesus draws an analogy between physical and spiritual harvests. It's an analogy that works both by way of correspondence, what they have in common, but also contrast, what's different. The correspondence is sowing and reaping. Seeds are planted, physical and spiritual, and you give them some time and you give them some nourishment, and they develop into good fruit, and we harvest. But in the physical realm, there's a gap often a lengthy one, between seed time and harvest. And in fact, prior to Jesus, the same could be said of the spiritual harvest. For thousands of years, the seeds of promise and the seeds of faith had been planted, looking always to the future, to a future fulfillment of what God would do. John the Baptist's ministry was like this. He called for repentance because of a future day of God's coming. He pointed to the one who would come, though he was before him. John planted seeds, and like everybody else, he waited, not knowing when the harvest would come. Now Jesus says to the disciples, pointing off at the approaching Samaritans, the physical harvest is four months away, isn't it? Seed has been sowed, work is underway, but there is nothing to gather for quite some time. And here's the point of contrast. The soul harvest is ripe for the plucking even now. A long line of sowers had come before, pointing forward to a day of harvest. But in Jesus, the time of sowing and reaping are brought together. The sowing hasn't stopped. Jesus sowed in the heart of the Samaritan woman. She went back and sowed in the hearts of the townspeople. But look just over that hill. Here comes the harvest already. This is fulfillment of Amos 9.13. When the prophet was given a vision of a future time when God would bless his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. In this passage, Jesus ushers in the promises fulfillment. He ushers in a new day in salvation history, the day of the harvest, the age of the church. We live in a time of sowing and harvesting. 
Even now, spiritual seeds are being sown in people's hearts. Even now, souls are being harvested into the kingdom of the Savior. And he says to the disciples, this is your work to do. This is what you're now participating in. This great harvest, first of Samaritan souls, reaping that which you did not sow. Who did the sowing? Jesus did the sowing. The Samaritan woman did the sowing. But he calls the disciples to bring in the harvest. Here they come. Join me in doing my father's work. This is our spiritual food. Kids, have you ever wished that instead of eating three meals a day, you could just snack the whole time on the stuff you like? I've tried to think through how to accomplish this. I really have. And with physical food, I can't figure out a way to do it without getting over full and feeling bad and being sick all the time. But there is a way this works with spiritual food. Spiritual food is always available. We don't just wait for a few important moments in the day or the week to consider God's will, to pursue spiritual food. We need to be snacking on that food all day, every day. Reading the word of God, thinking about the things of God, living moment by moment with the fruit of the spirit of God, living with thankfulness in our hearts, participating in worship, praying daily, talking to God's people. These are constant and ongoing activities. And Jesus said this was his spiritual food. And do you know why we need it constantly? Because the work is constant. You never know when God is going to use you to plant spiritual seeds, to water them, to help bring in the harvest. It's not just for adults, it's for the entire body of Christ. Your friends and family go through difficult things just like you do, just like grown-ups do. Your friends have hurts and confusion They feel left out and ignored, even sometimes by God himself. You deal with people every day who have insecurities and anxieties. And God put us in community, all of us, grown-ups and kids, because it is not good for man to be alone. He put us in community so that we can share spiritual food with one another as encouragement. Any of us obeying God's will, showing the love Megan talked about, patience with one another. Any of us could be the vehicle that God uses to give someone spiritual food. You may be what God uses to give someone strength and encouragement as they're trying to follow Jesus in a very difficult time. The songwriter speaks for all of us when he wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oftentimes, what God uses to steady our hearts is a good word from a fellow wanderer, spiritual food shared from a brother or sister in Christ. And like the Samaritan woman, there are also many people in our paths who don't know the Lord at all. Their lives are marked by constant wandering. They don't know where to go and they wouldn't know how to get there if they did. Jesus evangelized the woman at the well. He gave her the good news of himself. And she in turn evangelized many in her community. Come and meet the Savior. And now just look. Look over those hills. Jesus says the harvest fields are white. They both obeyed God's will. 
They were both nourished by that spiritual food. And now there's a harvest to bring in because God's purposes are sure. It says Jesus will only stay briefly in Samaria now, two days. He's going to complete the harvest among these people that the woman has brought to him. They received her testimony. Praise God for her. And now they will confirm her good news through the word of Jesus himself. And now next Jesus will go to Galilee and then eventually Jerusalem. All of this is in the father's timing and plan for the expansion of his kingdom. Jesus will explain that throughout his ministry. But make no mistake, the gospel will come back to Samaria. You can read about it in Acts 8. There is much more joy in store for this city as part of the great commission for many cities in which the good news of Jesus is sown and that good news is taken to Jerusalem and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that calling, that spiritual food, that obedience to the will of God, isn't just for first century disciples. Haven't you been given the Holy Spirit for this task as well? Jesus said that when his people receive the Holy Spirit, They will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But let's be honest. If obedience to the will of God is not something that sustains and delights you, that's just not something you're going to do. I often talk with Christians who are disappointed and discouraged by their own efforts or lack thereof to be a witness for Christ. And in many cases, that guilt is the Holy Spirit at work, convicting us of a lack of zeal for the harvest. Where are you engaged in harvest work? Where should you be? It doesn't have to be as dramatic as you think. Start with what I said to the children a few minutes ago. Encourage the obedience of another believer. Help shore up their faith in the face of trials and sorrows, and doubt. Use the word of God and the spirit of God to calm their anxieties and fears. I say start there because one, it's good, and two, it's practice. It helps us become comfortable using the language of faith in every area of life, day by day. So then we can use that same language in the lives of those who are adjacent to the kingdom, those who aren't hostile to God, but just seem lost. Those who might appreciate the wisdom and encouragement you have to share winsomely and with love. Invite them to church. Give them your testimony. Pray for them. Don't just tell them you'll pray with them. Stop and pray for them so that they hear the love and the faith of your prayer. Help them consider ultimate questions and whether their way of seeing the world could ever give them peace. Show them the real and lasting peace that is in your life that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then, yes, as the church of Jesus Christ, as the keepers of the Great Commission, we don't stop there either. We take the gospel into hostile territory. We confront the devil and his lies. We proclaim the truth of the one who sets the captives free. We pray for every name on that board in the hall. We pray for opportunities to speak plainly and joyfully about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll do the work that seems out of place and awkward and embarrassing 
if it's anything less than our spiritual food. We pray for opportunities. We pray for boldness to make use of those opportunities. We pray for effectiveness in those opportunities. But And this, this might be the part we're missing because it's an easy part to skip. We have to pray first that God would give us the priorities of his son. It's easy to identify with Mary's priorities, with Nicodemus, with the Samaritan woman's, with the disciples. It's easy to take on these other priorities that will always talk us out of sharing our faith or of giving someone the good news, of prioritizing the will of God, of doing in life what's easier or what makes us feel better or what is more acceptable. It is impossible to resist that temptation unless the will of God is our spiritual food, unless Jesus' priorities are ours. If we're going to participate, if we're going to be joyful participants in the harvest of souls, we need to think as Jesus thinks. We need to be sustained and delighted by obedience to the Father's will. And then what he says will be true. If we will put those things first, we will never be hungry or thirsty again. 